Hey everyone, welcome to Techonomics this week. I'm Jake, an analyst, writer, and engineer currently working in fintech. And I'm Arun, an investor, educator, and product leader currently working in the autonomous space. And this week we are talking to Tyler Odin, aka Knife Fight. <laughs> he previously was a director of product at Google, Pinterest, and has done some really interesting writing as of late with his new newsletter called Something Interesting. Hey, all right. We cool. have liftoff. Wait, we have everyone here. Yeah. And we also have it recording at the same time. This is the great achievement. Table stakes podcasting right here. I, I would, uh, I feel better about this, Jake, if it wasn't so common that this happened last year. And, uh, you know, this is the first time this would be a great achievement. However, we recorded nearly 20 podcasts last year. And yeah. we're here. It's, I guess it's not like riding a bike. You got, yeah. you got to keep up with the changing exactly. moves. Exactly. Tyler, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yeah. I think we know where to start all of this, which is yeah. talk about your name, your, your pseudonym, however you want to frame it, your identity online, yeah. Knife Fight. How, how yeah. did that come about? When I was younger, I used to do silly things with my hair for no particular reason. And one of the things that I did was I had a mohawk. And it turns out that 20 years ago, me with a mohawk actually looked modestly scary, like scarier than you would think. <laughs> and people treated me like I was a scary person, which I was not. I was a very affable nerd who was not in any way intimidating once you got to know me. And so a friend of mine gave that alter ego version of me mm -hmm. the name Knife Fight. And it was my nickname in grad school. And I think of Knife Fight as being this sort of larger than life version of me that people perceive mm -hmm. that isn't entirely real, but is fun to pilot as a persona. So that's who Knife Fight is for me, at least. Nice. And and you've decided to to actually write underneath that that name, which I think is is awesome. I, and I think you, you mentioned too that, and we'll get into this later, but there's a, a sort of like crypto punk angle to, to your identity online. Yeah, for sure. I, I have a crypto punk that I've been using as my profile pic, and I've, I've tried to be consistent about like where I am Knife Fight, the profile pic that I use is that CryptoPunk. So in some sense, that is what Night Fight looks like now. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what CryptoPunks are, we will go into that, I'm sure, very Absolutely, soon. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. But what we try to do with our guests on the show is just bring us through how you got to where you are currently. I know you're writing now with something interesting and you've been doing that for over a year now. And so how yeah. did you actually get to that point? Bring us through the history of you. So I alluded to my time in grad school. When I was in grad school, I was studying when I'm trying to impress people, which I suppose I should on a podcast, <laughs> I call it a game theoretic artificial intelligence, but it was mechanism design. It was the study of how to build systems that cause selfish players to achieve socially desirable outcomes. So mm -hmm. you might design an election system where everybody votes their interests, but it results in a good choice for who should be the leader. any number of systems like that. And to me, Bitcoin is as magical and as impossible as a a perpetual motion machine would be to a physics student. And the fact that it actually works every day I wake up and contemplate it and I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe that works. That's so wild. The first three years that I was aware of Bitcoin's existence, I didn't pay any attention to it because I was so confident that on paper it was impossible. And I had spent so much time thinking about it that I was like, oh, I don't even need to go think about this any further because I am an expert in this area and this is impossible. And it, it turns out it is possible. <laughs> that <laughs> was really fascinating and incredibly compelling to me. And I found that that seed of curiosity just really slowly took over the whole of my life. And at first it was just, I was reading everything I could about Bitcoin in my spare time. And then 
eventually I was like sneaking off between meetings to go find quiet paces at work to read extra Bitcoin articles and was yammering all night to my wife about all the exciting <laughs> things that I was thinking about with Bitcoin. And a year or two ago, I uh, decided to give myself some time off between jobs to just think about what I wanted to do next. And during that time, a friend of mine reached out to me and said, hey, do you have any crypto newsletters that you would recommend? And I was like, oh gosh, there's a lot of crypto content out there, but all of it is in some sense, you need to have a baseline understanding either to understand what they're saying or to defend yourself against their biases or both. And so there just wasn't anything I could recommend to somebody who was like smart and technical, but didn't have the, the a priori knowledge about crypto. That was the prompt that caused me to start doing something interesting. And then pretty shortly after starting to do it, I realized that it was like the happiest my brain had ever been. And it was uh, a thing that I wanted to lean into. So I've just been fully engaged with that since. For those curious, you can find the blog at somethinginteresting.news. Uh, yes, thank you. I'm bad about plugging the actual link <laughs> itself. <laughs> yeah, somethinginteresting.news. Check it out. Tell your friends. Please like and subscribe. I am now a paid subscriber. Yeah, and for those who are who do take a look to read it, follow in Arun's footsteps. Obviously, sign up as a paid subscriber, but it's super accessible. I think that's one of my favorite parts about it. I think if I were to look across the the board and all the crypto stuff that I read, it's by and large one of the most I would say factual, one of the most down to earth, one of the most like easy to follow pieces that I've read. So I just want to say thanks for putting that out there. Really yeah. appreciate that, man. That's definitely what I'm trying to do. I'm a big subscriber to the philosophy that you don't really understand something until you can explain it, which is, I, I still believe it when I'm in the crypto space, but it's humbling because it really lets you know how much you probably don't understand because there's so <laughs> many things that are actually really difficult to explain. But it's very joyful for me when I can untangle something to the point where I feel like I can pass it on to somebody who's intelligent, but doesn't have all the time in the world and all the curiosity to just stare at different explanations of complicated concepts and try and piece them together just because you're enjoying the mental Legos, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And when you were, when you started writing something interesting, what sort of, I guess, prompted you, you know, at, at a more fundamental level of, hey, like, why is there a gap in this type of, of newsletter? You know, how did you aim to fill that? Yeah. In my opinion, the hole that I saw when I started, and it's a gap that I still see in the market that I feel, uh, pain that it doesn't get solved that is calling me to produce this content is this feeling that almost everybody who understands crypto has like really sworn allegiance to a tribe. And so you do have some people who have really genuinely deep and sophisticated understanding, but they're almost all talking their bag. They, they have a team and they're cheerleading for their team. And then on the other side, you have people who are not just ignorant, but like proudly ignorant. Haha, check out how little I care about all this and how much I'm going to identify myself as the kind of person who would never care about this. And in between, in this space that I think of as being like normal human reaction to things where you just are like moderately interested, not super ideological, kind of want to know what matters and why. It was just like nobody was talking at that level. And that was a real problem to me, not just because it was this sort of like sell in an imaginary spreadsheet that I could imagine that didn't have any check marks in it. Yeah. But because in particular, I actually do think that the things that are happening in crypto are so important and so transformative that I actually do think normal, everyday mainstream people need to have opinions about it, need to understand the basics of it in a way that I don't think they do with machine learning. And I don't think they do mm -hmm. with VR. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are very cool and very technical and, and potentially very lucrative, but that don't really require everyone in society to, to have a basic grasp of. And I don't mm -hmm. think that's true of crypto. I think crypto is actually going to be so radical 
all adults who manage their own finances are going to need to think about what crypto means for their finances in the next 10 years. And so I really wanted to answer that. That's a really interesting point in some ways, because you can think about like my work in, in autonomous vehicles, you know, an autonomous vehicle to most people in the future will be an appliance. Somebody will get into it. They'll get to where they need to go, but there is no implication to their lives in most cases as to whether they understand how it works or not. They, they have to get to where they need to go. It needs to be safe and that's it. But I can see that case with crypto where average people are going to have to understand this in a way that is more like financial literacy is today. Like everybody should understand financial literacy and I think crypto is going to fall into that bucket and will be part of that financial literacy bucket. Yeah, I would agree. I think even like personal finance is something that many people struggle with, right? And then you throw this sort of like cryptocurrency piece on top of it that really just changes the model of what crypto is on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of your financial instruments that you have to look at. I, I, I do believe the same thing. It's radically changing the, the way that we, we think about money. And it's also funny because when you think about financial education and how that, that knowledge should be ubiquitous, some of the best financial education you get, it's not in schools, it's not in universities, it's actually off things like YouTube, podcasts, stuff like that. And that's sort of, there is no equivalent of that for cryptocurrency. When you think about financial education podcasts, there is no publication that really gives you a, that equivalent sort of uh, basic advice. These are sort of like the, the basic building blocks of how you build wealth. There is nothing like that for cryptocurrency in some ways. There's no basic education. And it's even a step worse than that, right? Like there's a bunch of predators that are hanging out in the darkness that it results from the lack of education, right? So there's a bunch of people who walk in and they're like, no, man, I'll totally show you the light. All you have to do is buy my coin or subscribe to my trader group or whatever. There's like so many different ways to capture the combination of people's curiosity and desire and ignorance in a way that is exploitative rather than helpful. And I feel like, you know, that's not really because of crypto. Like I know a lot of people sort of ascribe that quality to crypto itself, but I actually think what that is is a quality of, of the combination of money and ignorance. Like it's a very dangerous thing to combine money and ignorance. And so to me, what we need to do is as rapidly as possible as a society, go spread understanding of this thing which everyone needs to understand uh, because truly everyone needs to understand money. And if this really does change what money is and what money does and what it means, then it's going to change everyone's life, you know, in some regard or not. Do, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on how to make it accessible outside of something interesting, of course, but and I don't necessarily mean on a, like an informational basis, but more from a, an actual like usage basis. Of course, like there's the coin bases of the world and some of these mm. exchanges that allow people to like pretty quickly and easily turn their typical, all right, I can, you know, log in with my checking account and, and pull some funds down and like buy crypto. But like when we start yes. talking about the depths of crypto, there are other ways to earn. Mm. And I think that yeah. that's way above, I think, many people's heads. And also if you look at the amount of, and we can talk about this later, but the models in which you need to actually mine crypto, many people are just priced out of actually even getting in at yeah. the ground level. Do you have any thoughts on that? And maybe we, I know it's a deep topic to start with, but let's, let's dive in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I did a little bit of uh, Bitcoin mining myself for about a year. Uh, this was mm, five or six years ago now. I don't know. It's, it's all time is a flat circle, but the <laughs> time, the time that I did it, I was basically at just at the 
at the cusp of neutral profitability, if that mm. makes sense. So yep. it was basically a complicated game to move money around in a circle. I really enjoyed doing it. I, I have a lot of curiosity for the space, so I have fond memories of it. But as a as a like investment, it was <laughs> it was a whole lot of nothing. It was silly. You know, at this point, mining is a truly industrial competitive industry. So entering into mining, you know, people shouldn't think of it as a hobby accessible activity and it, it never will be again. At some point, it might actually get to the point where like only nation states are capable of mining. Right. <clears throat> the thing that miners are competing on is ultimately efficiency of capital and efficiency of electricity. So what people at home can potentially do or like ordinary human beings can potentially do is identify places where there is wasted or extra electricity. Like maybe you have a solar panel that's not hooked up to anything, or maybe you happen to have a property where the utilities are all bundled and like there's ways for you to get electricity that that's so cheap that it can't be competed with by the big industries, but it's not scalable, right? You can mm -hmm. never turn it into a business. I think that's a fun hobby, but I would, I would, I would compare it to like brewing your own beer. Like mm -hmm. don't, you wouldn't do that to get cheap beer. Don't mine Bitcoin as a cheap way to get Bitcoin. The cheapest way to get Bitcoin is to buy or to earn it by, you know, selling goods and services. You know, for most people in America, they don't need to do very much with Bitcoin. We have the luxury of a very strong local currency and a very strong local banking system. And so a lot of people in America have this kind of like, what do you use it for? And, and I get that reaction because for a typical American, that is a true and reasonable response. Like they don't have a lot of use for it. The, the literal advice that I give my friends is you should buy 0 0.007, I think is the amount. I have it somewhere on the uh, newsletter. Check out the newsletter, something interesting on news. But you, you buy a small amount, a more small amount than most people think. And that's enough to put you in like the 0.1% of Bitcoin wealth. And then you can just put it in a bank account not think about it again until maybe Bitcoin takes over the world. And then you're like, oh, cool. Do I still have that? And like, I don't think you should be doing much with it day to day. But there are people for whom it makes a lot of sense and a lot of value. I mean, like a, an example that I've been using a lot lately is uh, Alexei Navalny, the uh, guy who is the opposition leader to Putin in Russia. His whole party has been completely debanked. Putin has declared them to be domestic mm -hmm. terrorists. And so they are completely unable to move money around on traditional financial rails. So everything they do as a party, as a political party, all of their finances are on. And the reason for that is literally the uncensorability of Bitcoin. So for people who need a combat ready currency, Bitcoin has value in the world today. But there's a lot of people who don't need a combat ready currency and who, who have trouble understanding that that might have value, even if it doesn't have value in their lives. Yep. Um, and I guess my, my question there is, your point is taken that there are people, there, there are situations where you can end up unbanked for political reasons or whatnot. And I guess there's two questions here. The first is we have like a money laundering laws and things like that in society today. Yeah. And does Bitcoin skirt those things and make things possible that are, that were previously you know not possible, or we have a lot of rules against and a lot of obstacles to. And then the second question is just generally like the price action on Bitcoin, does that make it, is it even worth your trouble? Is, is that the route you want to go if you're unbanked, just given the price action? Yeah. Well, let me, let me start with that last question. Cause I think it's a valid one, right? Like volatility is clearly undesirable if you're not a gambler, if you're trying to live with the money, which of course most people are. So uh, I think the example that I would use is in Afghanistan, women are not allowed to have bank accounts. And there is an organization in Afghanistan whose name I believe is Code to Inspire. Forgive me if I've gotten it wrong, but it's something very similar to that. And they teach women in Afghanistan and girls to code 
and then teach them how to sell their coding skills online for Bitcoin mm. because they literally are not allowed to have bank accounts. So when you say to a person like that, like, how do you feel about the volatility? What they'll say to you is it's the only property I'm allowed to own. Mm. It's, you know, like the alternative is not the dollar. The alternative is being destitute. And so there's like, there's this kind of a reference point that changes how you feel about Bitcoin, where if you're neutral is having access to the US dollar, then Bitcoin feels very unnecessary because the dollar is such good money. But for much of the world, you know, if you're in Nigeria and their local currency is the Naira, it's been losing value for the last 10 years. You're not excited to be holding the Naira. If you're in Afghanistan, you might not be allowed to hold money in any way other than through these electronic services or like, well, electronic services is a terrible way to describe it, but you get what I'm going at. So I think there's... There's these real and very practical points at which Bitcoin has value today because of its uncensorable nature and because of its sort of permissionless nature. I think a thing that is a stated premise of Bitcoin's value that has not yet been tested in a serious way is the, the notion of scarcity as a hedge against inflation in the major mm. currencies. So like there's this kind of implicit question hanging around all of crypto, which is, do we really want Bitcoin or do we just want stable coins? You know, stable mm -hmm. coins kind of do all of the things that crypto can do, but then they're also pegged to the dollar. And gosh, the dollar's been so convenient. Let's maybe just stick with it. And I think there is a big competition happening there. I have a slide that I show in some of the presentations that I give to various companies that shows like what I think the trajectory of various currencies is. And the, the kind of TLDR is, I think stable coins are going to slaughter weak currencies. And then at the mm -hmm. end, there will be just Bitcoin and the dollar standing. Mm -hmm. And then there will be this big... I think, question of, are we going to live in a, a dual currency world? Is there going to be, you know, only one may stand kind of final showdown? And I don't necessarily have a strong intuition about that last one. Like I can see really good arguments in either direction. But the thing that I see in the near future that I feel very confident in is that the advance of crypto advances people's ability to circumvent failures in the banking system, whether they're failures that are structurally you know, placed in there by power to prevent them to access it or just failures because the banking system hasn't reached them or doesn't properly service them. And that the, the first place you will see that is that stable coins will dollarize economies. And you can see that happening already mm. actually in Nigeria. Um, is it like maybe fair to say this? I think, I think I've sort of toyed with this in my head, so I'd love to see what you think, but there's a world today and in that world, there's kind of one financial system. And that one financial system, it either works for you or it doesn't. And you're on the outside and using all these predatory products and things like that. Or you just don't have an option like that situation in Afghanistan that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But maybe there's a future where there's multiple monetary systems that at some level they compete for you. Mm -hmm. and, sure. and, and that's maybe a better future. What I would argue is that at any given time, any monetary system is in competition with any money, other monetary system. If you think about money at this sort of super basic, like, what is it? What is it doing? What is it for? It's a technology for moving value from place to place and from time to time. And the more people that are using the same technology, mm -hmm. the more places and times you can transport your value to. So there's this incredibly strong network effect where the more people who are using one network, the better that network is. And so money has this very, very natural monopoly tendency. yeah winner takes all right mm -hmm. yeah yeah and in fact the only thing in my opinion that prevents that at all is state intervention mm -hmm. and even with state intervention even with every major nation in the world understanding the value of having and controlling your own currency we all still kind of understand that the dollar has won 
and quite a few currencies are either literally pegged to the dollar or mm-hmm. are sort of Backed very much subjugated to the dollar in some significant way. Right. So like I, I think currencies are naturally at odds with each other. And I do think they have a zero sum quality to them. So I think they will inevitably come to form a, a, a larger single network. Now, as we see in the world today, the existence of a single dominant network doesn't mean only one network exists. And I sort of predict a world like that, where you say like, you know, it, 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 predicting the future is a fool's game, but to, to do a foolish thing, like what I think is the most likely outcome is that at some point nation states are hoarding Bitcoin and mm. Bitcoin is the underlying unit of ammo in currency wars. And they still will maintain their fiat currencies. They'll tax in their fiat currencies. They will maybe have price controls or capital controls in order to defend their currency as a political and economic tool. But that in some sense, all of those currencies today are, are all pegged to the dollar. And I think they will all eventually be pegged to Bitcoin, but that you will still see very similar world where there are local currencies and they do have fluctuating values with each other and governments do make monetary policy. You know, in the same way that every, every central bank or most of the major central banks have gold as part of their defense strategy for maintaining the, the value of their currency. I think you'll see the same thing, but just with digital gold. So that makes sense to me overall. I, I'm, you drew a corollary there, I think at the end, and not a direct explicit corollary, but one of, of adjacent of calling Bitcoin essentially digital gold. Yeah. So you, and you've also talked about the dollar is good money. Can you go into maybe your thoughts on what makes good money and like why Bitcoin is that? And then totally. the next question is going to be more around, okay, if there's this sort of like winner takes all effect, what does that mean for all these alternative coins that exist in the current cryptocurrency market that like everyone's super gung ho about? And I'll, I'll remind about that second question uh, once we get to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, please do. Because I think there's some really interesting uh, stuff to, to talk about there. I always think it's helpful to think about some specific examples when we're talking about money, because people have this belief yeah. that you, know, you like make up money and that anything could be money. But that's, of course, not true. Money or er, well, so water is super valuable. Everyone needs water to live. You have to drink water or you'll die. So could we use water as money? No, because water is easy to get and money can only carry as much value as it is difficult to get. Otherwise, people will just go work to gather money instead of working to produce value. So water, even though it is very valuable, is too easy to get to be good money. And then you could say, okay, well, how about bananas? So like bananas are hard to produce. They're very effortful. You can't just walk out and grab a banana from somewhere and everybody has to eat. So would bananas be good money? And the answer is no, because bananas spoil. And so bananas are not good at transporting value through space and time, which is the basic purpose of money. And then you could say, well, what about precious gems? And precious gems are scarce. They're difficult to get. They're stable, so they can store value over time. They're, they're easy to bring to and fro, but they're all unique. Everyone is its own special thing, which means rather than simplifying the pricing problem, when you try and trade A for B, you're actually making it a thousand times more complicated because you have to price each individual gem that you're trying to trade with. So gems are yeah. also not good money. So if you were in a world where the only objects possible were water, bananas, gems, and gold, everyone would agree that gold was objectively the best money. It's like there is, in fact, actually objective qualities that money can be better or worse at. And it's not a subjective game. It's not something we're choosing at random. And the objective qualities that we're optimizing for are what tool can transport my purchasing power through space and time in the most reliable way right? Like cheaply, safely, without loss. And if you think of it like shipping, then it makes a lot more sense how some technology can be objectively better than others. 
And so you look at gold and you it starts to make sense why we converged on gold as money multiple times throughout history in different parts of the world. Oh, it's uh, fungible, so you can form any price with it. You don't have to worry about pricing individual objects of it. It's uh, stable. It keeps value over time. It's hard to get, so you don't have to know you can compress a lot of value into a relatively dense object. So it just works well as money. It's just an effective money. The reason that the dollar is good money is because dollars are good at moving your purchasing value through space and time. And the reason that dollars are good at moving your purchasing value through space and time is because the U.S. government is stable. They have a relatively stable monetary policy. They have a strong tradition of property rights. They have a strong and healthy banking system. So generally speaking, you can rely on the dollars that you got today being useful to buy things tomorrow. And that's what you want out of money. And then there's this self-reinforcing feedback loop where whichever money is the best will work much better than the second best money because of that winner-takes-all network effect. Network. And so yeah. the way that economists talk about that is the monetary premium, like the amount of extra value that the thing that works as money has that is additional to whatever underlying basic utility it might have. So at various points in history, we used salt, we used silver, we used gold, we used different things as money. Mm -hmm. And at any time that those things were used as money, they carried an extra price premium because they were money, because money is... And that price premium only goes to the best money. It doesn't go to the second best money at all. And one of the ways you can see that is like when gold demonetized silver, there's like a particular moment in history where like silver stopped being money and gold started being the, the actual money. Mm. And you can watch the price premium of silver collapse down to essentially its industrial value plus its jewelry value and the mm. price of gold kind of absorbing that purchasing power because money is a winner takes all game. So yeah. I think that the dollar is good money in some sense because everyone believes it is good money, right? Because everyone believes it, it is yeah. true, but it isn't, it didn't come out of randomness. It isn't a completely subjective or hallucinatory experience. It is self-referential, but it is also rational. It does emerge from it and true properties monetary policy and yeah of these and actual things about dollars that are right. actually true and then not just things that people are like mutually hallucinating it's it, it frustrates me a lot this, you truly hallucinating about i like you have this thing that <laughs> I, I hear this a lot especially on the political left i consider myself slightly left of center politically and so i'm often frustrated at their takes on bitcoin because it's it culturally coded as right in our country for some dumb reason or another and a thing that you hear a lot on the left is people saying something to the effect of money is made up money isn't real and that's not true. Money is real and, and not treating it as real causes you to have very broken models of the economy and of the political structures that make the economy work. I think you can have a generally progressive policy uh, preference while still having a coherent understanding of reality. And it frustrates me to watch so many people like say, oh, to be properly tribally left, you have to treat money as this like fake thing which it definitely isn't. I think yeah. Bitcoin is the best possible money. And I think Bitcoin is the best possible money because it has an even more stable monetary policy than the US. Like it is impossible for Bitcoin to change its monetary policy. And so if you believe in the notion that people will value Bitcoin, then that self-referential loop that happened for the dollar can happen with much more uh, smoothness. Like the friction in that loop has been really basically eliminated. And that's why I think mm. Bitcoin will eventually capture first place. And when it does capture first place, we'll capture all of the monetary premium currently sitting in the dollar. Within the dollar or with, within the crypto markets as well? All of it. I think eventually Bitcoin will start sucking value out of the real estate market, out of the fine art market. Yeah. I just think there's a ton of places where people are saving. They're using things as, as forms of saving because we don't have a good universal savings tool. 
But I think Bitcoin is the best possible savings tool. And once everyone in society has that same belief, I mean, if that ever happens, obviously I'm not saying that's a foregone conclusion. If yeah. that happened, then it would naturally cause a whole bunch of the price premium on other goods to drop, you know, your stocks, yeah. your property, your precious metals, your fine arts. You know, there's these people uh, who are trying to move money out of China because China has very strict capital controls. It's very hard to move your wealth out of China. And so one of the things that they do is they buy stuff that they aren't actually really interested in owning, but that they're allowed to buy in a way that they wouldn't be allowed to just move their money around. So they've actually mm. had this problem in Vancouver where there are like whole neighborhoods full of empty houses that have been bought by wealthy Chinese people who are trying to move money out of China. And the real estate is just the tool they're using to do it. And so the price mm. of property is very high, but it's not really serving as property. It's really serving as this means of, of monetary freedom. And if there was a better tool yeah. for monetary freedom, then the price of property would go down. And I think that will happen in a lot of places where people are saving because money is a bad place to save right now. And that's a weird moment in history. So I guess two things there, I guess, if we sort of, we look at the market cap of Bitcoin mm -hmm. and we look at these sort of, I guess we call them, I don't know, movement vehicles for money, mm -hmm. like real estate. Do we know what that would be in terms of market? Do we know how much money is moved that way? Do we have any idea? The answer is no. That's also an acceptable answer. I was just curious. <laughs> what we can do is we can do lower bounds in various ways. I think it would be very hard to do an yeah. upper bound, but there's definitely enough evidence out there that money moves in these markets in strange ways that it's like clearly enormous. One of my favorite examples is that there's these businesses that exist solely to store art at airports. Have you guys heard about this? Yeah, I have. Oh, yeah. I, I have heard of those. Yeah. Yes. So it's like yes. some sizable yeah. part of the art market is dedicated entirely to the notion that these are expensive objects yep. that you can move around outside the tax system. And yep. that's dumb. Art should be where someone can look at it. <laughs> it's not dumb. We wouldn't have the movie Tenet if it was. It's a critical <laughs> plot. There's some point. useful <laughs> side effect. You know, we get cultural uh, yeah. silver linings for it. But I, yeah. so I just think there's like all these places where the behavior that we have is seemingly ridiculous until you recognize that it is a downstream side effect of the fact that nobody has money that they think will be trustworthy over time. And so they're putting their money in weird places and everybody has their own weird theory about what the best place is. And some of those weird theories are totally correct because it has to do with their specific constraints. And some of them are just like superstition. I was just going to say, it, it's got to be different per market, right? You look at China, to your point about like real estate from China or from Nigeria or what yeah. they're doing down in, what was it called? who's doing all of the Bitcoin buying up in South America? El Salvador? Is that who you're thinking of? Yeah. There's this, this really interesting like per market or per country constraint that I think lends itself all of that. And I think in the US, I think maybe that is why, to your point, it's hard for people to grasp why crypto, because we're like, oh, the dollar, it's it's fine. I can buy whatever I want to across the entire world with the dollar and no one's going to say anything. I just think yeah. a useful kind of uh, reframing that helps people understand how weird it is, how weird our system is and how much Bitcoin makes it look weird is the price of Bitcoin is different in different countries, right? There's a premium for Bitcoin in India and in Korea, and there's a, a price deficit in a couple of other countries. And uh, there's a huge premium in Turkey right now. And the reason that there's a price premium, it has nothing to do with Bitcoin because Bitcoin does not know anything about borders. There is no such thing as a Bitcoin in Turkey or a Bitcoin right. in Korea. The difference is in people's dollars or in people's purchasing power in the traditional financial system. It gets so hard to move money around that you can see the difficulty in moving money around by watching the lack of price arbitrage for Bitcoin.
because it would be trivial to move the Bitcoin anywhere. That part is for sure takes 10 minutes yeah. and, and no money. So the thing that's actually hard to do is to move the fiat dollars around, the fiat currencies around. And, and in that way, Bitcoin is like this one still place in a torrent of movement. And, and until your frame of reference moves to that, it looks like it's moving in a chaotic way. But then once your frame of reference moves to Bitcoin, you look around and you're like, wow, actually Bitcoin is the stable ground. And the, the chaos was actually all of the other things that I was comparing against yeah. Did you see the recent video or, or maybe the backstory of the FTX exchange um, founder and how he became this like crypto billionaire uh, using price arbitrage from Japan to the US? Uh, I am familiar with some of his uh, early exploits, but I have not seen the video that you're talking about. No, no, it, it was pretty wild. And it's cool to hear you talk about it more on the high level because it happens. Yeah, totally. You know, like you like know, genuinely yeah. in the early days of crypto, like making suitcases full of cash and taking flights was a rational form of behavior because it was that hard to move money around compared to how easy it was to move Bitcoin around. And people have this natural tendency to assume that the weird thing is Bitcoin because it's new. But like the longer that you think about it, the more you're like, Bitcoin is just a mirror, you know, or a yardstick. It's the weirdness is us. Something you said stuck out to me, which is that keeping using money as a store of value right now is not a good, like a good way of doing it. That may have, if I'm mangling what you no, said, no, no, please feel free to correct yeah. me. But so I guess my question here is, how much of Bitcoin right now, and may, maybe in the long run, this doesn't matter. It seems like what you talk about it is in the long run, this won't matter. But how much of like currently is the fascination with Bitcoin, the fact that, well, look, keeping money in a bank account has actually not been great for yeah. a long time. And and maybe now it's starting to maybe be, be less bad. I was going to say it's, it, well, or worse, given our inflationary positioning. Totally. That interaction of inflation, interest rates, Bitcoin... What are your thoughts there? I think uh, Michael Saylor of uh, MicroStrategy has some a good discussion of this kind of topic. The man's a bit enthusiastic and that for some people is a little off-putting. You know, for your listeners who go out and seek him out, you should just brace yourself. He, he loves him some Bitcoin. I don't disagree with him, but I do think he comes on pretty strong sometimes. <laughs> but one of the things that he talks about is that he was running a business and at times in his business, he wanted option value for his money for the future. He had money at the moment. He didn't have an immediate place. He wanted to deploy that capital, but he didn't want to send the money back as dividends. He felt like he had business opportunity. It was just going to come in 12 months, 18 months, whatever. And so he wanted to, to carry the capital and the carrying cost of capital is effectively the interest rate, or I'm sorry, the um, inflation rate. So assuming that you yep. take the government's numbers at face value, which I think a lot of people have some skepticism about, myself included. Uh, but if you take their numbers at face value. When you say the numbers, you're saying the like the, government- The government reported inflation, inflation rate. rates, right? Yes, yeah. Yes, so yes, yes. the government estimation is that at this moment in time, it is costing you 7% per year to hold your capital. And so what he was saying was, I cannot afford to pay 7% per year to hold my capital. That's not a, that's not a winning business proposition for him. And it was also not a winning business proposition for him to chase weaker and weaker investments, trying to make up. It was like running on a treadmill that was pushing you back faster than you could run forward. And so what he did was he moved his treasury or a sizable part of his treasury into Bitcoin with the argument that because the monetary policy of the world that we're seeing today is causing the level of inflation that we're seeing, it is making it hard to run a business using dollars. And instead, mm. I am going to migrate some sizable part of my business over to Bitcoin under the belief that the Bitcoin monetary policy will give me more future option value, 
more ability to save safe. But that is predicated on Bitcoin either going up or staying stable relative to goods and services, which we know in the long run could be the case, but in the short run, that seems like it could be challenging. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Microsoft sailors. <laughs> I think what he says about Bitcoin could be true, but like how he manages corporate, how he's managing his corporate balance sheet at MicroStrategy is not a, not a favorite thing. Of I mine. actually think um, it's a genius strategy and I'd love to defend it to you. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Let's please. I will play intermediary. Yeah. Let's do I this. I think Michael Saylor's advice to ordinary humans is bad. But I want to make that clear. Like he tells people to go mortgage their home and buy Bitcoin. And I think that's just terrible advice and a bad thing to say. So I don't necessarily think his marketing message is particularly coherent. But my basic thesis about what he's doing is this. There exists a large body of demand to hold Bitcoin without touching it. There are people who want price exposure to Bitcoin, but who do not want to actually manage the direct ownership of Bitcoin either because they are afraid to own the crypto and manage it and the, the sort of various literal risks there, or sometimes there are like rules about what they're allowed to own in their, their funds or investments that preclude anything oddball, right? That basically say like, you can only buy normal stuff and normal is defined as listed on the New York Stock Exchange, stuff like that. And so for the people who are bound by those borders, but who still have demand for Bitcoin, the thing that would serve their needs is a Bitcoin spot ETF but there isn't one, which means right now there is a hole in the market for somebody who can create an equity shim around Bitcoin. And they can create a lot of demand for their stock by making their stock basically a pot for Bitcoin. And that is what I think he's doing. And I agree with you that it's an oddball strategy, but I think it's actually very smart given the specific position of the market and the need for this thing, which is both an equity and also Bitcoin. Yeah, I guess my, my thing is that my only sort of objection to it is there's people, there's people who held MicroStrategy stock before that. If they were caught, and I don't know what the price action on MicroStrategy stock was, they should go look at it. There's a chance that they got caught. It's a really interesting ethical question like about this. like how much pivoting is a strong executive at a company ethically allowed to do. Mm -hmm. Like when you're investing in a very early startup, oh, you're investing in someone who's going to pivot the business model, right? That's not unethical. Everybody knows that when you do a five-person startup, they're probably going to change their business model before they hit product market fit. But I agree with you, you know, like a 20 year old enterprise software company suddenly becoming a pot of Bitcoin is a much more dramatic and unexpected pivot. And I don't know, it's an interesting question, like how much of a pivot is ethically reasonable? And at what point are you taking advantage of the inertia of stockholders and just treating their money as your plaything? It's a valid objection to have. I don't know where you draw the line, though. I don't think it's as fair. Yeah, I actually wonder. Yeah. Is the, the next thing is for a SPAC just to acquire a bunch of Bitcoin? Well, I mean, become the ship that can you do that? Would that be the ship that way? That might uh, be a DeFi project that's seeking to pivot into becoming a SPAC mm -hmm. or to be acquired by a SPAC. Mm -hmm. I'm not totally sure. I haven't been paying close attention, but yeah, every you know, the spreadsheet of financial concepts, everybody looks at the intersection of every possible one and they're like, <laughs> oh, I haven't seen SPAC plus DeFi. What can we do with that? <laughs> I, I do think though that like, all right, back to the ethical argument, just real quick yeah. is there, the thing is a, C a CEO could do something outrageous not tied to the balance sheet of their current corporation that will greatly impact the stock price just overall sure, right scandal the ceo there's yeah. implicit so i i think no matter what we want to do even if you did have a board that had to take a look at all of the the change in, in balance sheet which i'm sure there's some of but taking that into consideration along the way diversification of portfolios are there so that you don't get caught with your pants down where 
there is someone who's done something bad that causes the price of a stock to, to, to fall. Jake, the, the problem there is that, so yes, you can have a moral hazard that, that impacts the stock price, but it doesn't change the ultimate fundamentals of the business and people will capitalize the company based on the fundamentals ultimately. But, um, but the startup argument is salient. And it's not always right? just startups, right? Elon Musk is a huge part of what Tesla is. Yeah. The people who are investing in Tesla are investing in Elon Musk and that dude is crazy. So what is he allowed to do? No arguments here. I honestly have no idea. Like his investors have clearly endorsed right. him. Right. So when he comes out and says, we're going to accept Dogecoin for Tesla keychains, that sounds stupid to me, but I have no idea if that's what his investors want. I have no idea if that's the right. most profitable decision he could make. His business model is so far from reality. <laughs> <laughs> Does he even have I mean, one? Do we know? I don't know. <laughs> it's just the world's best Twitter. Oh, I hate it. I just think that like the, so the startup argument is, look, there's a reason why startups are in private markets and there's much less regulation and you have to be an accredited investor to play in that pool with a public company. I just think it's very different. And I don't even know, I don't even know what like history may, may prove, you know, what I'm saying today as is idiotic. Like, that was the most genius thing anyone's <laughs> ever done. And I, I, I think it'll be a great discussion. In, one day. In practice in American jurisprudence, the law loosely says if they made money, it wasn't illegal. And if they lost money, it might've been illegal. Sue them and find out. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it is interesting. It's an interesting case for sure. And I think that there's this whole thing as to his responsibility as CEO and to the firm and how he has even purchased that Bitcoin. As far as I, if I recall correctly, there was some debt, there was a debt it's, transaction Yeah, it's a debt involved. purchase. Yeah, he's levered. And, and so that also, uh, you can understand, you know, he's concerning at someone like super good terms on the first round of debt. Now, at this point, he's accumulated enough debt that this statement is no longer true. But the first round of debt, he actually got such good terms on the debt that it was like, wow, no wonder you bought because you were basically getting like mortgage bribed to do it. Yeah. Do you know the origin story of FedEx? Have you ever heard about the moment in FedEx where they had to gamble the company? No, enlighten like, This me. is when they, so they used to deliver, it was like a, they were like letters to packages or like money it was, to packages? It was very early in the history of the company. So it was before they were the full thing that we think of FedEx today. And I don't remember what the subset of FedEx that existed at that era was. Mm -hmm. But there was a moment where they looked at the bank account and they were like, we will not have enough money to pay our drivers on Monday. We are going to go bankrupt on Monday. And the CEO took all of the money remaining in the coffers, the money that hypothetically could have paid you know, two thirds of the bills that were due on Monday. And he went to Vegas and he literally put it all on red and he won. And then he came back and paid off their bills on Monday and now they're FedEx. And so it's actually, what year was this? I do not remember, but I'm sure you could look it up. It's a well-known story. It's often discussed as this like quintessential, you know, trolley problem of business ethics. Like yeah. he placed a bet and won. And in some sense, when you invest in an entrepreneur, you are asking them to place bets on your behalf. So like you are yeah. supposed to take structured bets as structured risks as an entrepreneur. This was an uncomfortably literal risk. Like, I don't think anybody really feels like that's a, that's a okay thing to do. But on the other hand, it was FedEx on the other side. Like those investors made insane hand over fist on their investment. So there's this kind of real politic question of are you really going to say it was a bad thing for him to do the thing that made fedex that was always going to be a high risk thing is it ethically worse I mean, if the risk is no my view is you can do the wrong thing and it can work out sure but if you went you back know, and asked in, in an ev sense i think there's an interesting yeah. question about whether he had permission to do it and what that means and, and i'm not disputing that but just in a ev i don't think that was necessarily an unreasonable wage right like a 50 mm -hmm. percent chance at creating fedex was a good bet. 
that was a good wage in terms of like literal investment, cynical dollar maximization. And we do have this notion societally that we are in trusting entrepreneurs to decide which wagers are good wagers to make. And there's just this question of how much are we trusting them? And I don't know. That's a, there are different people I think can have reasonable disagreements about it, but it's at the limit much more gray than it seems. So initially, you, at first you have this sort of very quick, ah, just do the business and don't do the not business. And then you look at the limits in the quantum physics, everything breaks down. Yeah, I can say this as somebody who, who is a founder now and you have oversight, right? I guess my question is to make a decision that big. I would probably have to get some sort of approval. And I guess, what was the understanding of oversight at the time for FedEx? Maybe it was, we trust this person hundred percent. Or we have no months. other option, right? Like we have, yeah. there's no other option. We, we don't have money to keep the business afloat. So we either do it or we die. I mean, I think there's a reasonable yeah. case to be made that if you actually got all the investors in the room and said, look, we can either pay two thirds of our bill on Monday and then go bankrupt, or I can put it all on red and we'll see what happens. Like. I, I don't know if that's necessarily a, a, bait, a, a bet that they would have been hesitant to place given the constraints of the situation, but it is weird. It's, it, it is really does create yeah. this very strange feeling. And may, maybe what Sailor's doing is the equivalent of that in some ways. I, I guess maybe it's more thoughtful, maybe, but it's still a gamble. I think it's very cunning and it's very much a, a, a structured wager, but I also think that in and of itself is not damning. Being clever with your financial engineering and taking risks in so doing is just one of the things that the capitalist structure that we have societally encourages right now. And I, I don't necessarily love that aspect of it. We could maybe think about dismantling all of society, well, but in the meantime, yeah. I don't know that I hold <laughs> sailor to any particular account for it. Just using a, a new financial instrument to, to help do some financial I have this idea of a cool new money at... that I think could maybe help <laughs> do some of this restructuring. <laughs> yeah, if it works out, I guess like the one thing I would just say is I think if Bitcoin drops below 33K, might be at some issues, but there is just one thing, sorry, Jake, I know I cut you off, but there is a question that I've actually been dying to ask in this last conversation. Thread, is that it. it seems to me is that you're a Bitcoin maximalist. Is that true? Oh, I actually have a post from about a month ago that's uh, titled giving up on Bitcoin maximalism. I do still consider Bitcoin the best money and I do still consider money to be a winner take all game. So I think to the extent that cryptocurrencies are trying literally to be money, they will lose and they will lose to Bitcoin. On the other hand, I think at this point, there's now a sufficient diversity to the set of things that are being built under the umbrella of crypto that a lot of those things are not trying to be money and don't need to compete with Bitcoin. So NFTs are a very obvious example. There's nothing about NFTs that are trying to be money. They're trying to be some cultural object. And so I think they could potentially exist in a world where Bitcoin is the money. But more subtly, I think there's a lot of stuff built on DeFi that is about tricks you can make money do, but isn't about creating a competitive money. So like MakerDAO is a good example where they're building this mm -hmm. financial derivative that's intended to create a two-sided investment object where some people can buy the risk off of other people. And that's a cool financial object that will continue to be useful no matter what the underlying tokens that we're trading are. And so I think there's a lot of things in DeFi that people would call crypto, that people might call the tokens cryptocurrencies, and I don't think they're trying to be money. Like, I don't think Maker or Die are, well, Die, you could argue, is trying to be money. That's a different beast. But, I, you know, there's this sense to which there's a single winner competition over who gets the monetary premium, who's going to be the store of value. Mm -hmm. And I think that's Bitcoin. And I think that's unambiguous and complete. But after that happens, I still anticipate a world where a lot of cool stuff is happening and we call it crypto. 
So yeah. that's part of what I meant by that post. And then the other half of it is that these days the the brand Bitcoin maximalist has come to mean this like very uncurious, very hostile kind of philosophy to the space that I'm I'm not sympathetic to. Like I think it's cool to go buy things and play with things that you aren't sure will work. I think it's cool to go build things that you aren't sure will work. I think the whole notion that every possible innovation that isn't Bitcoin focused is somehow a threat to Bitcoin is insecure. And so that is, to me, increasingly what people mean when they mean maximalist. They mean the kind of people who shout scam at everyone who does anything that has a different name than Bitcoin. And I don't want to be that guy. But I do still believe that Bitcoin will win. I do still believe it's the best money ever made. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember reading one of your posts around Bitcoin as good money and, and why it will win out. And then talking about Ethereum and some of the other mm -hmm. altcoins, adjacent players in the market where you have smart contracts, you have the ability to like build on top of money, mm -hmm. if you will, yep. and have that leverage. I'm curious if you were to look at, because, okay, NFTs are a good example. Yeah. Because NFTs themselves, if you look at the backing currency, which mo most NFTs trade, they're mostly on the ERC-20 protocol and, and are trade, traded with Ethereum, as far as I understand. So I could a, be an wrong. An interesting so. and useful nuance to that is that yeah. ERC-20 is actually not Ethereum specific. ERC-20 right, is actually right. across it, all the platforms. Like, NFTs are ERC-721, but the same thing is true for that. Oh, they are? Yep. Oh, okay. Uh, cool. Or ERC-1155 is in the newest model. <laughs> but uh, in any case... <laughs> The reason that's interesting is because all of the other competing platforms that are trying to be the smart contract platform, in the same way that there's a yeah. single fight to be the monetary network, I think there's a single fight to be the uh, smart contract platform. And all of them yeah. are all co-compatible or striving to become co-compatible yeah. um, as a means of trying to poach these use cases. It, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like if you were to look at the social networks as they exist. And and they would have come up with a protocol that was almost uh, that was identical and being shared amongst them in in the hopes of like poaching from from one to the other. That it, it seems almost. I I understand why they would do that <laughs> at least in, in this case because yeah. it's very early and they've already seen what network effects look like in on the age of the internet. But like it's a very interesting change in in the way that you would have seen like a, a normal and maybe it's because it's community driven. But do you have any thoughts on that? I actually think it's because it's open source. So mm -hmm. like fundamentally, if you imagine Facebook having had to build Facebook out in the open where everybody could see how mm -hmm. everything worked, everyone probably would have made their stuff compatible with Facebook because why would you not? It's the biggest possible pool yeah. of data to draw from and it's the most sophisticated example to learn from. So to the extent that everything in crypto is transparent, it becomes easier to do this kind of mimicry. And you do see the same mimicry in the history of social networks, right? Like one produced a feed and then eventually everybody had a news feed. And it's just slower yep. because you can't literally copy the code. Whereas in crypto, yeah. you can just be like, cool library, bro. <laughs> now it's a feature in my platform too. So I think it's yeah. 721 is a really, ERC 721 is a really good example of this where yeah. it was the Ethereum community that invented ERC 721. And ERC-721 is arguably the most successful mainstream crypto use case so far, right? Like NFTs yeah. have mainstream attention in a way that nothing else in crypto ever has. And Ethereum isn't benefiting as much from that as you might think, in part because Ethereum doesn't have a monopoly on ERC-721, even right. though they were the creators of it. And right now, Ethereum has the lead, they have the pole position in the smart contract platform. And so if you're trying to buy tokens and you want them to be on the longest lived platform, you'll go to Ethereum. But there's nothing about those tokens that's trapped on Ethereum. If we find yep. in next year totally. that there's a new L1 that everybody agrees is the hotness, 
like people will create wrapper contracts and they'll port their tokens over to whatever platform they think is the most likely to have longevity. So NFTs yeah. have a lot of activity on Ethereum and people interpret that as a defense, as like a moat, but they shouldn't. It's not actually a defense. It's like yeah. the size of the prize for the competing platform. Like the larger that economy is, the more people are going to spring up trying to capture it. And it does not protect itself. It can easily move to whatever platform has the best offers. So we'll see if anybody can produce a better platform than Ethereum. Yeah. So far, that hasn't been the case. We're still very early in the process. I have a lot of misgivings with Ethereum as a platform. So I certainly think it will be outcompeted. But as of right now, all the NFTs that I own are Ethereum NFTs. So I what in the smart contract space excites you? I am really excited by a lot of the contracts themselves. I'm so far not excited about most of the platforms themselves. Like I'm very suspicious mm -hmm. of the platforms, each for their own idiosyncratic reasons, but all of them fail to pass my personal muster. But a lot of the stuff being built on them, I think is really cool, really neat and interesting financial stuff. My personal favorite is actually the financial derivatives built on NFTs because they're so bizarre. So there's a guy whose name is slipping my mind so i won't have it but maybe we can put links in the podcast notes or whatever but there's a yeah, guy who i was does gonna these, say we can put him in the notes yeah, yeah there's a guy who does these financial contracts that are based on nfts and he has one that's called a uh, morty and one that's called a rick named after rick and morty but they're mm. these nice i'm already a fan i'm already a fan of this yeah right so morty how do i buy it are uh mortingale shares <laughs> and the idea behind a mortingale <laughs> share is you sell a percentage ownership of your NFT and NFT. that that percentage ownership has a structural chance every unit of time to double, right? So every, I'm going to make up numbers, but like every day it has a 20% chance of doubling. And so over time it will, if left alone, eventually own the entirety of your uh, NFT, but only in this probabilistic way. And it will always be relatively capturable, right? So it's like taking a micro loan against your NFT. The reason that that's interesting to do is because it allows you to ask the market what price your NFT is worth without selling your NFT. So if mm. you've got a complete one of oh, one, interesting. a really fascinating, unique NFT, and you're like, this is definitely expensive, but is it like a hundred expensive or a thousand expensive? I don't know. And you want to insure it or you want to take a loan out against it or mm. whatever. What you can do is you can use these Mortys to structurally query the market as to what the financial value of your object is without having to relinquish control of it. And that's insane. That's never been true of anything. Before. Imagine how much money is spent Wait, assessing I... real estate, you know, like having professional experts come and look at these unique objects, these non-fungible products, and then tell you how much they think they're worth. Imagine if that job was just done by the market and you could know uh, for but I mean, sure. It's... That's only unique because of the nature of an NFT, but there are things that are priced in real time all the time and either price, correct? Most of the things By that the are market. priced in real time are fungible objects that have liquid markets. So generally speaking, the more liquid yep. a market it is, the more that you have confidence in the price. But things like real estate, for example, there is no liquid market for my house because my house only comes on the market once when I sell it and then it's done, right? So like my house has properties which are entirely unique to my house. It is functionally a non-fungible object. And so pricing it is a subjective exercise, one that you often might hire experts for like a realtor. And what I could do, what you could imagine doing is instead using this financial derivative, which was built for NFTs, but which you could apply to other things that have non-fungible mm -hmm. properties and using this sort of structured wager, I could basically take out a loan 
and then pay back that loan. And the price that the market found for the value of owning my loan would tell me what the value of my house was or what my unique NFT is. RICs are similarly clever objects. I don't understand them as well, so I can't explain them off the top of my head. But the purpose of a RIC is basically to arrive at the price point of a property in a collection abstracted away from a specific piece. So let's say you wanted to know, like, what's the value of an eye patch in CryptoPunks? Right. What's the value of laser eyes in a board API yeah. club? Or what's the value yeah. of having a third bathroom in a uh, residential home? What RICs are is they're ways to uh, allow people to probabilistically invest in whole classes of objects that are grouped by a shared feature in, in the hopes of deriving a price for that feature. So that you could then go and say, hey, I can just say this apartment is in this neighborhood and has this many bedrooms and this many bathrooms and this special feature. And presumably it would be able to spit out some yeah. reasonable guess as to what that would be worth. What a, you, maybe this is taking us a little bit away from this topic, but it's still in the NFT space. You, you talked about Bitcoin and, and how you would tell people, how, you know, hey, this is how I would value it or this mm -hmm. is how I would view Bitcoin in the a wide swath of financial instruments or currencies that you currently interact with. Yeah. What about NFTs? Like, how would you explain that to, to a, a normal individual? Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing that I try and tell everyone that I don't think a lot of people believe me, unfortunately, is that I don't think NFTs are investments. I think they're entertainment objects. I think they're cool entertainment objects. I like them and I understand why people like them and I don't think it's a fad. But I also don't think that number go up and stocks only go up. And so I think there's a lot of people who are treating it as an <laughs> investment strategy that, and I think that's foolish. Yeah. So the comparison I would draw is, I don't know if either of you gentlemen have ever played Magic the Gathering, but I played Magic the Gathering a lot as a child. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I have a fairly... I, I don't play it. <laughs> I don't play it, but I stockpile the cards as an alternate investment yeah. asset. So there you go. <laughs> they like, those cards have real market value, oh, right? Yeah. They like actually mm -hmm. have market value. It would be foolish to set them on fire. On the other hand, uh, yeah. if you said, hey, my real my retirement plan is magic cards, magic the game. I would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's not a retirement plan. That's a foolish thing to do. Yeah. And so it's the same thing with NFTs. Like it is totally fine to collect them. It is totally fine to be excited when they accrue value. But you need to understand that they are fashion objects. They will rise and fall very quickly and very arbitrarily. They're not a good place to put money that you need later. They're How do you, sorry to interrupt you, Tyler. How do you rationalize that? Or I guess map that to a lot of what people discuss is like NFTs are, it's like an art market, <laughs> right? Like it's like a high art market yeah. because high art market is, I mean, you, you could argue that the NFT space is maybe getting to that point with the price that we've currently seen of a lot of the assets that are rare crypto punks being one. The other is obviously the apes uh, well, and so I on. Mean, Christie's but and Sotheby's are yeah. having like NFT auctions right. pretty regularly these days. So I would say right. NFTs have been fully embraced by the high art market itself. The art critic for The New Yorker, whose name is slipping my mind, has these lovely quotes recently about how a bunch of people are wrong about NFTs. That he's just like, no, NFTs mm -hmm. are art because art is a very broad tent and like the people who yeah. say that things are not art are basically always wrong like that's it's a very easy rule of thumb if someone says that's not real art then they're wrong because it's a conversation between the artist and the audience as opposed to being some objective knowable truth in a final sense i think that the art market today serves a lot of purposes simultaneously you know there's part of what you're doing in the art market is buying art that you love part of what you're doing is buying status right. Part of what you're doing is moving money around. You know, there's these, as we were talking about earlier, there's these financial yeah. reasons to buy or sell pieces of art in various ways. I think 
in a world where store of value has centralized on a single tool, and, and obviously I think that tool is Bitcoin, but in any world where that stops being intermingled with the art market, I think the art market will change shape drastically. So the world that we see in the art market today, I think that the bubble there has been pricked and there's going to be great transformative change. I don't feel qualified to predict what that change will look like on the other end, but I feel qualified yeah. to say it'll be different. What I do think is that NFTs will be part of the story of art, but today we think of NFTs as being a genre of art. And I think our children will think of that as being very dumb and primitive. And in the mm. way that we don't think of drawing as, well, no, that's not even the right, like we don't think of paper as a genre of art. Paper is just a tool that artists use. And some artists use it to draw on and some use it to paint on and some tear it up and make origami <laughs> sculptures with it and some turn it into paper mache. And I don't know, there's a million things you can do with paper, but paper isn't art and it isn't a type of art. Yeah. It's just a thing artists can use. And that's how I think NFTs are going to feel in the future. People are going to be like, oh, NFTs are an artistic tool or material. Some artists find it very compelling and are really excited about it. Other artists not, and they don't. And so I think, you know, this, there's this verb today of I want to buy an NFT that I think is very dumb. It is the equivalent of I want to buy an art. And it's very much an indication of this sort of newness of the space where all of us, like, what's an NFT? I don't know. I want one. You would never just wake up one day and be like, I want to buy an art. What art should I buy, Twitter? That's ridiculous. So when we, if I had enough money to wake up and ask, if, can I buy an art today? That would be great. I think so, I'd be in the stratosphere at that point. Lovely quote from Zoidberg in one of the episodes of Futurama where he pulls out a dollar and, or a $300 bill and says, one art, please. And I think about it a lot when I see people talking about <laughs> NFTs. So like today people are like, I want to go into the NFT market and then they pick things out of the NFT market. I don't think that's natural. I don't think that's how people will consume art. I think what will be the future and what, what you will know, when you will know that NFTs have made it and are quote unquote real, is that people will be drawn to the artist that they are interested in and the right. artist will be making NFTs or will be doing something with NFTs. So people won't say to themselves, I'm going to go to OpenSea and browse around for my favorite NFT or one that I think is going to go to the moon. They'll instead say like, oh, I love Taylor Swift and she just released a fan club with 500 NFTs and I want to be on the Taylor Swift fan club. And so I think there's all these ways in which NFTs as a tool will become more and more intertwined with content creation and artistic connection with fans. And as it so does, it will become like water and we will stop noticing it. We will stop talking about it. Does that hold true for the like subset of the NFT market for, for lack of a better way to, to ask around some of them that are a little bit more avatar focused because most of them are floating that way. I'm the, I'm looking at the apes. I actually don't know who the artist is for the ape. They're anonymous. Know, part of my name. So, no, that's, that's great. That's, yeah, okay, yeah. perfect. So I shouldn't have said that anyway. Anyways, <laughs> but but generally like it's a status symbol, right? At, at that point in time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're looking at the... But art has been I a status Steph symbol Curry for a long time, name, right? right? The notion yeah. that art is a status tool is very ancient, as old as art itself. Yeah. But there's this like community aspect, isn't there? That like, oh, no, the word people community try to in the NFT space. I think it's such a lie. Okay, great. So this yeah. is what I, this is what I want to hear. <laughs> so go, can tell me more about that? Because it, for me, it just, it, that's the part that I have trouble with yeah. that I don't quite understand. There's a bunch of people in the NFT space who are absolutely the thing that people are stereotyping all of NFTs about. They're gamblers. They're speculating. They don't care about the art. They're trying to sell their bags. They are the shills that everyone hates. That is a huge and real section of the market and they're loud. You know, those are the people who talk about community. They're like, oh, the community is so great. And what they really mean is all of us are clumping at this. It's, it's like your friend calling you up and telling you that the party they're at is the cool party, right? 
It's yeah. like they are talking their book. Mm. They want you to come to the party they're at. So they're going to tell you the party they're at is a yeah. community. Nobody is forming a community. There's this concept in Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut of a grand faloon. And a grand faloon mm. is a group of people who think they're connected, but they're not. Like everyone uh. from Indiana. You'd be like, oh, you're from Indiana too? Uh, we have that in common. And it's like, no, you don't have that in common because that's not actually a real thing to have in common. That's like too broad a group of people <laughs> to be meaningful. And that's how I feel about the people who think that they have something, mm. some community connection to the, the people who bought the same cartoon drawing as them. And I say that as a guy who yeah. really likes his cartoon profile pictures. I own an ape. I'm not selling it. <laughs> I really like it. I have my alt account wears my mutant ape as his profile picture and is very active in the NFT Twitter, active in the, in the you know, ape follow ape space. So I'm not impugning the idea that that's fun, but it's not, it's not meaningful. It is as meaningful as somebody saying this club is hop. That's, yeah. that's what it means. <laughs> it's interesting because you have a blog post and, and that post I actually thought was really interesting because NFTs are actually centralized. A lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. And this seems to be very like anti in like anti the crypto ethos of decentralization and things like that. Thoughts on why that works. Yeah. Uh, while like other things like that would almost be decried in the crypto space in other ways, mm -hmm. but in the NFT space, it seems to work for some odd reason. Yeah. And just quickly, I, I think that extends to a lot of the uh, currencies and, and platforms as they currently stand too. So I think maybe we can even widen that question to not even NFTs. Yeah. I'd, so the starting point, I'll start with NFTs because I think in NFTs, it's rational. And then I think in broader data, yeah. it's a bit of uh, willful ignorance. Perfect. In NFTs, when you own art, you have a central dependency on the artist, right? Like when Woody Allen went out and got in trouble for all of his sex crimes, everybody who loved Woody Allen films winced because Woody Allen's relationship to Woody Allen's films is fundamental. He's the artist. And when you are the artist, you are fundamentally connected to the art. There is a trust relationship to that art. And it's not technical. It's not, it has nothing to do with the implementation or the media. It's just the nature of how we value culture. So the connection, the centralization around the artist itself is like meaningless, in my opinion, because that is the thing you're buying in the first place. And a, a simple example that I like to give of that is, you know, the artist is ultimately, in most cases, in charge of authenticity, as the market defines it. So when Taylor Swift goes out and says, hey, guys, all my old recordings have been taken from me, and they're not valid anymore. And if you want the kind of recorded music that actually represents Taylor Swift, the real Taylor Swift is the Taylor's versions recordings. And so all of the fans that consider themselves real Taylor Swift fans now prefer the Taylor's versions of those otherwise very similar songs. I mean, they're not literally identical because she did re-record them, but broadly she re-recorded all the same music and her fans moved because the new authentic version is the one that she said was authentic. Conversely, uh, tops cannot print new Mickey Mantle rookie cards. No one would care. It wouldn't be relevant. They would, people would look at that and be like, that's not a Mickey Mantle rookie card because tops isn't the source of authority or authentication for that. It's history that gave authenticity to the Mickey Mantle uh, card. So there's this notion of authenticity that's very slippery. It's very cultural. It has no technical meaning whatsoever. And people often want to fit that slippery cultural concept into a rigorous, you know, computer science box and it doesn't work. And that's where a lot of this confusion comes up. So like, it's okay for the board apes to have centralization because ultimately the people who want board apes want to be part of the party that is being thrown by Yuga Labs. And so they want to be connected to Yuga Labs. They want to be centralized around Yuga Labs. It's Yuga Labs that's throwing the party that they're interested in being at. And so 
that mm. level of centralization is harmless. It's redundant to the nature of what the NFT is actually meant to be. On the other hand, decentralization or centralization with respect to the marketplace is wildly different. If you say, hey, look at what is happening between OpenSea and LooksRare right now. LooksRare is actively bribing all of OpenSea's customers to go switch platforms. And the reason that LooksRare can do that is because OpenSea's customers can take all of their tokens with them when they go and switch platforms in a way that if you switch social networks, you have to leave behind your friend graph, right? Mm -hmm. So fundamentally, NFTs, by virtue of being the kind of decentralized they are, which is not fully decentralized, but which has decentralized properties, actually makes them much more potent in terms of economic liquidity. Marketplaces have to work much harder to serve those needs, and they're much more accessible to artists and to audiences mm. than they were in the traditional markets. And the reason is because NFTs are decentralized and permissionless, even though they are still centralized around the artist. I also think there's an extent to which people conflate, I have the option to decentralize in the event that I need it, with decentralization is already actively part of my strategy and I'm paying for it today. So like, for example, Coinbase is going to come out with an NFT wallet soon. I expect the yep. Coinbase NFT wallet to be very successful. I expect it also to be a good experience. I think there's a decent chance that I'll move some of my blue chip NFTs into Coinbase just so I can sleep better at night and be like, no, it's not me <laughs> that's bumbling around with the ledger and hoping I didn't sign something I shouldn't have. So I think the notion of storing your NFTs with Coinbase is perfectly reasonable, but that's very different from the notion of buying a six-figure digital item from Activision in World of Warcraft, because there is no escape valve for that second item, right? If Coinbase ever makes me sad or mad, I can take right, my NFT go. out, I can go to whatever platform I think is going to make me a better offer. But if it's actually centralized on the support platform, then I'm hosed, then I have no escape valve. And so... The question of who are you decentralized against requires a threat model of who you're trying to protect against. And in NFTs, I don't think you're trying to protect against the artist, but you are trying to protect against the marketplaces. And that's why the, the kinds of centralization that they have actually is not crazy. It, it is actually internally consistent. In my Sometimes there's just dumb stuff too. There's a lot of dumb stuff everywhere in crypto. <laughs> What is, uh, all right, I'll grab onto that. What is the maybe most heinous thing that you've seen or, or the thing that makes you unable to sleep at night? Oh man, the one that makes me the saddest, if I'm honest with you, is Elon Musk pumping Dogecoin because mm -hmm. Dogecoin is like, Dogecoin was a funny joke when it launched. I really liked it. I played with Dogecoin. I donated to their like NASCAR thing and to the Jamaican bobsled team. And I, I you know, kept and then subsequently lost some silly number of Dogecoin because who cared? And, and it was fun. I liked it. And then now Dogecoin is like this, this corpse of a joke that's being weekend at Bernie's around the party and used to trick newbies into losing their money and it makes me sad you know i look at that and i'm like oh dogecoin yeah. was a safe harmless fun place and now i think it's kind of predatory kind of dark mm. and really broken and then to watch elon just be like i don't know i don't really care about any of this you guys should all go buy dogecoin and i'm like oh man you don't even understand what you're doing to people bro that's yeah um, and actually this is my view of this he got his wrist slapped by the sec for doing things he genuinely shouldn't be doing right and so his revenge now is to basically manipulate unregulated securities. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and yeah. that's a, and that's essentially what I see this as doing. And he's done 
he's done harm to people. Like people will go and follow his advice and come to harm because of it. And really it's exceptionally irresponsible. Yeah. And it's him deliberately taking his reputation and turning it into other people's financial damage just for kicks. Right. Mm -hmm. Like just because he's bored and like, I wonder how many people's lives I can ruin with a tweet. And that's to me just despicable and sad. I think there's like, you know, on a lighter note, I think there's some very fun, dumb things that happen in crypto. Uh, We were talking about this the other day, Jake, but like one of my favorite facts about crypto is that four of the seven first smart contracts that were deployed on Ethereum were provably fair pyramid schemes. Like the first thing people ever built was a pyramid scheme because nobody had ever had a fair or trustworthy pyramid scheme before. So we just were like, oh, I wonder what a a trustworthy con would look like. What would it be? And that's... (laughs) cool and interesting and clever but then now it has become this like massive market of ponzinomics where people are getting lured into these like dog coin derivatives and so it started in this very interesting novel cute place but then it metastasized into i don't know something i don't like as much we we talked about education a little bit there around the sort of bad actors that exist in the market Mm -hmm. and and i think there are platforms like coinbase for instance is a good platform people trust it right there's this inherent trust within that platform so Bitcoin's expensive, right? You can buy a a certain percentage of a Bitcoin, of course, but each altcoin, these new coins, they are cheap. They are, there are tokens that exist in quarters and in micro, micro cents on the dollar and people buy them and I'm expecting them to go to the moon. I I imagine the majority of, of people are looking at that going, okay, cool. I can't really afford these like blue chip cryptocurrencies. So I'm going to funnel my money into these other altcoins. Have you given thought to that economic positioning of, of altcoins and how it impacts the the everyday investor yeah totally unit bias is a real thing and it's a, a sad thing because it very much leads people astray i have this graph that's in my pile of notes that i intend one day to find a way to wedge it into a newsletter that shows the performance of various tokens in the crypto market sorted by their nominal token price which shouldn't matter at all but when you group them by their nominal token price you can see this very distinct premium for things that have a cheap nominal token price. That is one of the fundamental drivers that keeps Doge alive is that it costs you a dollar to buy a billion Doge or whatever. Obviously, it's not true anymore, but the the yeah. feeling <laughs> of artificial wealth, having buying, many, yeah, yes. buying 10,000 of something is so much more satisfying right. than buying one ten thousandth of something. There's a lot of people totally. out there who want to pitch Satoshis as the sort of standard that you present. And in fact, you often see in Bitcoin-only businesses that they will default to either Satoshis or Bits, which is 100 Satoshis. That makes sense. It makes sense to me. I think the, the, reason, the mental gymnastics are tough. Yeah, I think the reason that we won't see it adopted, that it won't actually yeah. happen, is because there are so many businesses that benefit from that unit bias. So like, mm. I'm going to pick on Coinbase a bit because I do think this is something Coinbase does. It's like Coinbase's business is a lot more lucrative if you buy a thousand altcoins than it is if you buy one Bitcoin and then go back to your day-to-day life. Right. So they would much rather that you feel this need to go explore their browsing of listings and buy a few of this and a little of that. And that's much more lucrative for them. So they could change all of their UI to make Bitcoin into Satoshis. But why? They would rather that you shop for other things anyway. So everywhere that has more than one coin they would like to sell you, they know that Bitcoin already has its own tailwind. And they should be putting their thumb on the scale in favor of everything else if they want to have the even playing field that will get them the most money. So they're going to be benefiting the underdog and undercutting the first position just by nature of their business, what they want their users to be doing. 
So I don't think we will adopt Satoshis as the standard until we have given up on the notion of, oh, there's going to be as many cryptocurrencies as there are stocks. And that's a thing that I am routinely disappointed about with Coinbase is they've really committed themselves to the multi-coin philosophy and the multi-coin future in a way that I think is detrimental to their users. But they would argue the opposite. They would say that I'm being detrimental to users by not giving them access to the burgeoning range of possible technologies and tools and that I'm being paternalistic by saying that Bitcoin is the one they should own, which maybe I am. I don't think that's necessarily a incorrect view. I'm good friends with one of the uh, directors at Coinbase and we have this debate a lot where I'm like, ah, you're, nice. you're peddling altcoins to children. And he's like, ah, you're just on your porch yelling at everyone to get off your lawn. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's merit with a Bitcoin arguments. statue in the yeah, middle exactly. of it. Yeah, exactly. Like, ah, you shouldn't be buying that. Come buy my bags. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, nice. And I don't know if you have a stance on this, but just we we talked about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency generally. We've talked about NFTs. There's like this other burgeoning field in cryptocurrency, which is Web three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just for those listening that don't know what it is what is it and why uh, what, what, i'm really curious what, to hear what you have to say on that one <laughs> what is the driving force behind all of this because i definitely have thoughts but i'm also not an expert yeah totally well, i'm i my general rule of thumb is that anybody who calls themselves a crypto expert is a liar because it hasn't been around for long enough for us to have formed legitimate expertise so don't feel like you're alone and not being an expert and i certainly wouldn't want to imply that i am <laughs> but i think so the reason that Web3 is hard to define is very much like the reason that Metaverse is hard to define. It's because it's a marketing term, not an actual term. And so it means whatever people want it to mean in the moment, whatever they think will get you the most hyped. Broadly speaking, I think the most fair description of Web3 that is both true and useful is that it is the idea that we can build new web experiences using crypto primitive natives, na crypto native primitives rather. And I think there is some truth to that, but I don't think it's as true as people want it to be. Like, I, I think a lot of the things that are currently being built in DeFi are very silly in the sense that there's no reason to build a decentralized version of that thing. You know, so like a, mm -hmm. recently there was a, a VC that got dragged for tweeting something to the effect of who's building Uber for DeFi, I want to talk to you. And like, you should never build Uber I for DeFi. That's just a ludicrously bad proposal. It doesn't make any sense at all. Even if you think crypto is the future, you should build Uber and then just charge Bitcoin. Like there's no reason for everything to be running on a blockchain. And I think right. there's a lot of things in DeFi that are just like someone who thought decentralized all the things was a product strategy and it wasn't. And the whole of Ethereum is predicated on this notion that we're a hop, skip and a jump away from decentralization being cheap. And so it's okay that everything's ludicrously expensive right now because it's going to get cheap real soon. And I don't believe that. I don't believe it will ever be cheap to decentralize. And so I think a lot of the things being built in DeFi are predicated on this eventual future of decentralization abundance that I don't think is true. It's a bit like somebody saying like, I have all these cool ideas for businesses to run once we figured out cold fusion. And I'm like, I bet you do. I bet those are some cool ideas. I bet we won't need them because we don't know how to do cold fusion. And, and I feel the same way about cheap decentralization. It's like, yeah, predicating your business on that coming in the near future is, in my opinion, not sound. And is this, is this fair? I mean, there's cases where a trustless system works well, but when you need trust, you probably need some element of centralization. I think that an interesting question being explored by the market right now is what are the shades of decentralization that are useful and valuable? A thing I would have told you mm -hmm. three years ago that I no longer believe 
is I would have told you three years ago that the only kind of decentralization that was valuable was absolute decentralization. And I now no longer believe that. I still believe that about money. I still believe that like for money, the eventual end game of money is like yeah. nation states going to war. You need to be ready to, to like throw the hell down if you want to be a monetary system. But if you want to be a collection of ape drawings, I'm not sure you need to be ready to go to war for that. I think actually a, a system that's a hassle to mess with might be enough. And so Solana is a really good example of splitting the difference. One of the ways you can split the difference where Solana basically has a discord with all of the validators on it. Mm -hmm. And you can literally go to that discord and you can be like, hey guys, yeah. let's coordinate because they are centralized. And there are some times when that's really good, right? If law enforcement goes to Solana and says, hey, there's this child porn ring that's running on Solana, shut it down. Solana can shut it down. And yet at the same time, because of the fact that it's running in this sort of weird Rube Goldberg machine of pseudo decentralization, Solana can go to each jurisdiction and look them in the eye and make a plausible argument that they're not part of that jurisdiction. That like Solana isn't in America. Solana isn't in Europe. So the European laws and the American laws don't apply to Solana because Solana is a different jurisdiction. And I think what Solana is doing effectively is saying, what if we negotiated with all the authorities for how much freedom we can have without getting messed with? And then instead of having full on battle defenses, we just let the authorities know that if we get hassled with, we'll be annoying, but we also won't do anything too problematic. We're going to let mm. people do unregistered securities, but we're not going to let them raise funds for terrorism. And I think there's a space to negotiate that kind of neutral. Uh, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. I, I think actually hearing you talk about it like that solidified my opinion there because I do believe that there is this sort of like faux pas around the, the fact that decentralization is going to cause, you know, obviously the Silk Road, the next Silk Road yeah. or even worse, which is, yeah, we're talking about the benefits of sending your money from China, which arguably is not awesome that they have such tight monetary control over their citizens, but that's the benefits, right? That That's the pros to, to it, but there's also a lot of detriment. So like from a centralization perspective, I, I do think that there needs to be at least some form of it, whether it's in the form of like you were talking about the, the folks that are running Salon or some sort of DAO or, or something, I don't know. I do believe fundamentally that centralization will help to mitigate a lot of those bad actors in the long term. Yeah. I may be a little bit more radical, to be honest with you. I view the fact that centralization of inevitable is a sort of a failure. And if I could find mm -hmm. a way to solve it, I would be excited about that solution in the same way that I'd be ex I was excited when Bitcoin yeah. solved a big chunk of it. And I previously did think it was impossible. So I'm prepared you know, for somebody to come out and be like, aha, nice. you were wrong. This is also possible. And that would be an exciting day. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. To my mind, what I think is that all power structures are suspect all power structures can be turned towards whatever use the mm. powerful have in mind. And that in general, I view the arc of progress to be the arc of removing the powerless from a position of vulnerability. And that mm. is a, is a very fundamentally anti-authoritarian philosophy, right? So that's one that says like the state is a necessary evil that must be trimmed as much as possible, as aggressively as yeah. possible. And so I, view systems which remove central checks of authority as being fundamentally good. But a lot of people don't. And I think there's a real interesting societal question about how much of a check, you know, like, for example, if you were to say to me, Tyler, you can choose between a world of total absolute chaos where anything goes or a world where everything goes except we've 
built a system that shuts down terrorism and child porn. I would be like, yeah, that sounds good. I would like to shut down those problems. That seems like a bad thing. But I actually think the trade-offs are never that clean. I actually think the trade-offs are usually more of, we're all scared, should we give that guy a gun? And then- Well, it's very, it's hard to segregate, right? Because inherently it's hard to understand who is a bad actor and who isn't a bad actor. Right, like the definition of terrorist is up to the person who's got the control of the program. That's exactly right. So like Alexei Navalny is a terrorist according to the official system. That's, That's the formal designation that his society has placed him under. I don't think that's appropriate or correct, but it is the way that the power structure has manifested against him. In general, I think most power structures are built with benign intent and most power structures are used with benign intent and most power structures eventually become pernicious and need to be destroyed. Uh, And so I I generally view all power Mm. structures as being, if they're not yet corrupted, they eventually will corrupt and need to be destroyed. which is what I love about Bitcoin. It is incorruptible, can't be changed. I was going to ask if, if your opinion is true for all types of decentralized cryptocurrency or, or Bitcoin, if it's because fundamentally, if Bitcoin is just money, mm-hmm. right? you transfer money across the, the Bitcoin network. Yep. You don't have smart contracts that are in, acting in a certain way. You don't have certain centralization. You're not able to take it, your Bitcoin to another network. That inherently changes the way that that operates comparatively to like, like we were talking about, you know, ERC tokens, mm-hmm. depending on what the protocol is. So like, do, do you feel like your high level abstraction lays well towards all of those subsets of, of crypto? Or do you think that there's any um, variance between? I mean, I guess the, to, to take it to like a real full abstraction, I would say that for any given power structure, there are people who are in power and then there are people uh, for whom the power is held over right? There's someone in charge of the power structure and there's someone who's bound by the power structure. And in order for the power structure to be fundamentally good, the people in power have to be fundamentally superior in a moral sense to the people who are not in power. Because otherwise, it's just a question of who gets to indulge their bad impulses. So unless you have a theory whereby you can sort good people from bad people in a reliable and consistent way, then you, your power structure is not good. And it can't be good. It can only be as good as the fact that it happens to be in the hands of a good person or good people at that moment. And eventually it will fall in the hands of somebody who's bad. And it will fall in the hands of somebody who's bad inevitably because someone who's more willing to compromise ethics in the pursuit of power will eventually accumulate more power than someone who's more ethically bound, right? Ethics are in some sense always an efficiency compromise. And so the most efficient pursuers of power will be the least ethical, which means eventually all forms of power will become tools for achieving themselves all forms of power eventually just become feedback loops and that's why i have this sort of strong preference for systems that remove power and remove people from positions of power. Mm-hmm. tyler i think jake and i would probably agree we don't want this conversation to end <laughs> we're kind of we're angling already for you to come back but More i guess happy like to. in the spirit fun of conversation yeah, this is yeah, great. Yeah, I, I think we've only scratched the surface and i'm sure that first of all i don't think we've we fully been able to leverage your your entire knowledge base. And I think also this is an evolving conversation. So I'm sure hopefully I'm hoping that this is the first in many appearances (laughs) you'll make. Yeah. Um, Lord knows that by next week, um, everything will have changed. So 
<laughs> yeah, but we have a tradition here on on Techonomics, which was the hot take. What I've now rebranded it to be called Papa Jake's Hot Take. Papa Jake's he's Hot now a Father. Ooh, love the wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm really. I had no idea about this before this episode, and I am game. <laughs> I am game for this. Yeah, yeah, and and in true Techonomics fashion, I am going to deliver Papa Jake's Hot Take for no real reason. It's just branding, and this one's up your alley. So Facebook just exited their sort of like cryptocurrency payments yeah. initiative. And I'd love to just get your thoughts. We had other topics, but I felt like none of them were as prescient to sort of ask you. Yeah, I, I think it's a super interesting development. I always thought that the Facebook project would fail. I don't want to make it sound like that was an especially prescient view. I think that was a fairly widely held view. I think the reason that it was going to fail is because every government in the world thought the idea of Facebook being a competitor in the money market was terrifying and they all hated it. They all immediately hated it and they all hated it universally. It was bipartisan hate. So it's hard to be as unifying as people's opposition to Facebook is at this moment in history. And, and so that, that is kind of why their failure was inevitable, right? It was because everybody immediately unified in their opposition and kept a consistent front on that. And so Facebook eventually was like, all right, fine, I can't do it. But the thing that I think is most interesting to infer from that is not that everyone hates Facebook because everyone already knows that. I think what's interesting to do is to look at the difference between Facebook and Tether. So Facebook, I mean, say what you will about Facebook as a company, and I'm not especially fond of them, but when they were doing this project, they were really trying to play by the rules. You know, they didn't hide anything. They were 100% reaching out to all the regulators. They were transparent with what they were doing. They were trying to be in the straight and narrow. And they spent a just a metric butt ton of money and got nothing for it. They ended up shutting down the business, mm. totally failed. With all the resources of Facebook and with all the desire to play by the rules, their end result was to shrug and say, this is impossible. But Tether, which probably has like 10 employees total and is the sketchiest goddamn company on the planet, has been able to get billions of dollars worth of business doing stable coins because Tether didn't ask anyone's permission and Tether didn't care about breaking rules and Tether didn't care about looking like a total sketchball. And now they're the winners. And I think a thing you can see consistently looking across the entire crypto market right now is that there is a set of people who are trying to play by the books, who are trying to do the regulatory friendly thing, and they're all losing to the set of people who are like, pew, pew, it's a new world, I don't care. And I think that's interesting. I'm enjoying it from a journalistic perspective. But if I was a regulator, I would be very concerned about that. Because, you know, you look at the business landscape right now, and first of all, everybody's gotta be thinking, why would I bother being conservative? That's clearly a bad strategy. And second of all, the next generation of businesses is going to be built entirely out of people who thought regulators were dust chewing morons who didn't need to be consulted. So like they need the people who care about regulators to be successful mm -hmm. if they want regulators to continue to be relevant. If all the companies that win are the companies that think regulators don't matter, then regulators are going to have a very rude awakening. So I am confused because what I see is like Gemini getting scolded for offering 8% interest rates and DeFi projects offering like seven figure APYs and then rugging. <laughs> what is the priority right now that we have in terms of defending our regulatory rules, in terms of establishing laws of the land? Because it looks very incoherent. And eventually, the law that's written down doesn't matter. The law that matters is the one that we actually enforce. And totally, we're finding out that and those it's laws are really power than we thought. Right. Yeah. Tyler, I was, I was just saying, I, I, it's, it's funny because Facebook, I mean, Facebook's scared because they're 
they're seen powerful and they're already in the eye mm-hmm. of, of antitrust lawsuits and, and God knows what else uh, going down from, from government specific. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's kind of like what I would, what I would consider to be like maybe some sort of jaywalking or, or maybe even some sort mm-hmm. of like other, other law that in practice is, is typically benign. But if something happens on some day where someone really important does it and they're like seen, you know, or maybe these these COVID these leaders that are going to COVID parties, for instance, yeah. and, and getting in trouble because their 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 country currently has that that tight policy on COVID restrictions. It definitely is an, an interesting place to be. I feel like selective enforcement is really a, like a profoundly bad way to run society because what you're doing at oh, that point too. is giving a huge amount of power to unelected officials, right? Like they get to king make by deciding who gets enforced and who gets yeah. away with it. And then that kingmaking power becomes the source of corruption that I was talking about earlier that has economic value and everything of economic value is eventually sold. So if you give unelected bureaucrats the power to choose which business will make money, that will eventually be a point of leverage that money takes control of in a a long enough time. So got to have consistency. And I always fundamentally... I always fundamentally believe that when the kingmakers are tainted, so are the kings. Mm-hmm, totally. And yeah, absolutely. I've never seen I've never seen an example where history proves me wrong. Yeah. And like if you're not even if you are actually the best, because like, sometimes just it happens that the kingmaker chooses the person who would have otherwise been king. You're still going to be resting on your laurels. You're not going to be shipping as hard. You're not going to be innovating as hard. There's a lot of stuff that would be better if you felt like you had to earn your spot as opposed mm-hmm. to just make sure you cozied up with the right revolving door regular regulator yeah yeah absolutely well tyler thanks so much i guess i should say aka knife fight thanks so much for, for joining us on the show um, yeah thank you definitely yeah the amount of, of information that i learned and picked up in this podcast is immense and i want to thank you it, it's been a, an honor to talk to you today oh it's an honor to talk with you as well super fun let's do it again <laughs> soon yeah Hey everyone, Arun and I are extremely grateful to have you as a Technomics listener. As a reminder, the views expressed in the content of this podcast or anything linked in the newsletter, website, posts, or posted in social media or other platforms are that of our own and are not the views of any person, company, entity, or even any related affiliates. The content is not directed to any investors or even potential investors. It does not constitute an offer to sell or is a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. It may not be used or relied upon in evaluating the merits of any investment. Thank you.